Here's something for you to ponder. What is the first thing you think of when you hear that something is overripe? Well, it depends on what it is. If it's fruits or vegetables, you know it means it's at the point of spoilage. If it's milk in the refrigerator, you know that it's soured and probably has chunks in it. If it's the garbage, you know it stinks. And it all makes me think of a story I read one time about a boy that wanted to play a trick on his granddaddy. You see, granddaddy was a bit of a cranky old man. And this cranky old granddaddy had laid down to take a nap. And so to have some fun, the grandson decided he would put some Limburger cheese on granddad's mustache while granddad was asleep. There it was, right under his nose. Well, grandpa awoke with a snort and staggered out of the bedroom and shouted to everybody, This room stinks. Then he went all through the house and shouted louder into every room, This whole house stinks. He went out onto the porch and he said, The whole world stinks. And truth be told, it was grandpa that stunk. And the problem like it is oftentimes, was right under his nose. Ninety-five times out of a hundred, when we think that life stinks, the problem is not with the world. And the problem is not with other people. The problem is with us. When we reach a point we think the whole world stinks, the problem usually is because our attitude has become negative. Our attitude has become overripe. And our attitude has become like Grandpa's Limburger cheese. Our text this morning comes from Luke chapter 15 and verse 29. Jesus is telling a story there. And in that 29th verse, Jesus said, and he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never, never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Now when you stop and think about that passage, it's a very ugly text. Because it describes an attitude that is smelly, it's stinky, it's sour, and it's overripe. It's an attitude and it's a statement that's a cross between a snarl and a whine. And yet, at the same time, it is the testimony of a very earnest, very upright man. A man who has spent every day of his life in his father's house. A man who, according to his own testimony, has been a very dutiful son. To be honest, he's been a near-perfect son. Not one time has this man that made that statement transgressed his father's commandment. And yet all of his goodness and all of his uprightness and all of his doing what his father wanted him to do has brought him next to nothing. He said, you never even gave me a kid so I could have a party with my friends. 
And the father sadly does not deny the charge. You see, this is the elder brother or the older son in the story of the prodigal son. And this boy in that story represents the ugly company, that ugly group of overripe, sour, spoiled saints. He is one of those unfortunate creatures whose religion has been nothing short of sheer drudgery all of his life. And sadly, it was his own fault. The father in the story was infinitely eager to share everything that he had with this son. Because he says, son, thou art ever with me. He said, Thou art ever with me. All that I have is Thine. That's what His Father had said to Him. But in spite of the Father's eagerness to give, this son was completely famished as his far brother was, or as his younger brother was in the far country. We read this familiar story in Luke 15. And when we read the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, none of us admire this elder brother, this elder son. If you were searching for an abundant life, you would never think of asking the elder brother where to find it. If we were tortured by more heartache than we could possibly handle... We'd never turn to Him for advice. If you read the parable, even Jesus, who's always able to see the best in us, even Jesus has nothing good to say about this elder brother. And yet with all of that, we still cannot conclude that this elder son was utterly bad Because you see, no man and no woman on the top side of God's green earth is ever utterly, completely bad. In spite of the fact that this elder brother is so disappointing, there's still some good things you can say about him. You see, this elder brother in the story, he represents the typical Pharisee. His life is totally honest and upright. He's utterly free from the ugly sins of the flesh. When the story of the prodigal son opens, this elder brother is out in the field. He's out in a clean environment. He's out where blue skies are over his head. He's out where fresh winds bring him the aroma of upturned sod and newly mown hay. And he was in that environment. Because that's where he wanted to be. And while he's in this environment with blue skies overhead and the smell of newly mown hay filling his nostrils, his younger brother is in the pigsty. His younger brother is in a foul and filthy environment. And yet, why was the younger son in that foul, filthy environment? He was there. Because of his own poor choices in life. 
His sins were sins of the flesh. And he'd wasted his substance in riotous living. And so we're forced to conclude that in this respect, this elder son, in respect of his living a clean, upright life, he's leagues ahead of his younger brother. One brother's clean and one brother is unclean. It's that simple. And the fact that the story opens and he's out in the field is indicative of something else. He's a hard worker. And work is the obligation of every man or every woman. It's been said that a gentleman... Well, one thing that's been said is a gentleman never forgets a lady's birthday and never remembers which one it is. But a gentleman is also someone who puts more into life than he takes out. And this overripe saint, this older brother, was on his way to being a gentleman. He was out in the field working, and working is the roadway to self-respect. It's godlike. Jesus said, My Father worketh, and I work. While this son was working, the younger brother was out wasting things that the father had worked for. So here again, he's working, the younger brother is wasting, he's clean, the younger brother is unclean, he's still leagues ahead of him. And so being clean and being a hard worker, this older brother is making a positive contribution. As far as that prodigal son in the far country was concerned, the farm could be turned back into a wilderness. So far as that younger brother, the prodigal, cared, the whole place could topple into ruins and it wouldn't matter to him. It wasn't his problem. But this older brother, this elder son, he's the one that kept the farm going. He helped to keep the home place capable of receiving his prodigal brother when his ruin was over. There's another story of Jesus referred to as the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And when we hear that story of the Pharisee and the publican, the two men that went to the temple to pray, our sympathies are always with the publican. In spite of the fact that we know that he's a renegade and a traitor to his country. But we watch the Pharisee as he's Pats himself on the back and says, Oh God, I thank Thee I'm not like other men are, extortioners, unjust. I pay tithes, I fast. We have no sympathy for that Pharisee. Because he's got a good eye on himself and he's got a bad eye on others. And we seem to... But what we need to remember about that Pharisee is, in spite of all of his faults and shortcomings in that parable in Luke 18... It was his loyalty to his religion that built the temple and kept it open. And had it not been for him with all of his ugliness, there would have been no place of prayer for the publican to even go to in his hour of need. So there's some good things you can say about this elder brother in the story in Luke chapter 15. But in spite of his decency, And in spite of his goodness, and in spite of his industriousness, he's still disappointing. And he's not just disappointing to himself. He's disappointing to his father. 
He's disappointing to His brother. And He's disappointing to me and you too. He fundamentally has one basic defect. He's a member of the family. But though He's a member of the family, He's totally lacking in family spirit and love and loyalty. The whole story indicates that this older brother is not on good terms with his father. And he's not on good terms with his brother. He's bound up in a bundle of life with other people. And he insisted on acting like a loner. And this lack of family spirit, that's behind everything that's ugly. And it's behind everything that's ruinous in this young man's life. If you think about it, this lack of family spirit accounts for the major tragedies of human history. You see, how to live together, that's kind of been a fundamental problem ever since Cain killed Abel. And a lack of family spirit spells tragedy to the group. And a lack of family spirit spells tragedy to the individual. I want you to notice how this worked for this elder son. Tragedy in the family struck that day that the younger brother announced he was headed for the far country. Because when the younger son said to his father, I want my inheritance and I'm going to, to the far country, I'm leaving home, that was news that broke the father's heart. That was news that caused the father to shed bitter tears. And this elder brother could not shut his eyes to the suffering that he saw on his father's face. But... He had no fellowship in his suffering. And he simply shrugged it off and said, not my problem. Failing to care that his brother was wasting his substance in riotous living, he failed to do anything about it. He failed to even try. He was interested and keeping up the family farm, and keeping up the institution of the farm, but he was totally indifferent to the individual. Are you listening? I must confess this. I feel that there is no more dangerous, no more cruel sin than the sin of indifference. The ability to look upon the wounds and the woes and the heartaches of other people and be totally unmoved by it. One of the most hellish single sentences is one we read in the Gospels. Judas has just betrayed the Lord. And after committing that sin... Judas had a heart that was filled with remorse. And he felt he must find relief. 
But in his hour of desperation, Judas does not turn to the Lord that he has betrayed. And the fact that Judas did not turn to Jesus whom he had betrayed was the most ruinous sin of Judas. Judas' greatest sin was not in betraying Jesus with a kiss. It was in his failure to come back after that ghastly sin and permit Jesus to forgive him. If Judas had come back to Jesus, and if Judas had asked Jesus to forgive him, his story would have been the story of one of the most beautiful saints in history. Though Judas did not repudiate religion altogether, instead of turning to Jesus, he turned to the priests. In that day and time, in the environment where Judas had grown up, when he turned to the priests, they were the ministers. They were the men that had taught him since childhood. They were the men that could have helped him. They were the men that should have helped him. They even had a word in their own Scriptures that they had in that day and time. Though thy sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But when Judas came to them because of his sin, they did not give not give that broken man that assurance from the pen of Isaiah. They answered his confession of guilt with the most devilish of all words. In the King James it reads, What is that to us? See thou to that. Paraphrase for the 21st century. What do we care? It's not our problem, Judas. Deal with it. That's what the men that he went to for help told him. Because they didn't care. I wonder sometimes about us. How many of us have made that same statement? And if we haven't made it with our lips, have we made it with our lives? You know, sometimes it's really pretty easy not to care. You see, another ugliness on the part of this elder son quite naturally grew out of the first. He failed to see, he failed to care that his brother had gone away. And failing to care that his brother went away, he had no joy in his brother's return. I can by an eye of faith this morning, I can see the father standing out there, looking down the road and seeing that young prodigal coming, seeing him coming from afar off. And what did he do? He ran. I see his long robes flowing in the breeze and I see him run to embrace that son that's been gone. And he's so happy. He's happy beyond all words. And the home atmosphere is filled with happiness and it spreads from the Father to the point that the hired servants there are sharing in the joy. But that joy doesn't carry over to the elder son. Refusing to share in the family obligations, refusing to share in responsibilities. He's not capable of sharing in the family's privileges and joys. Laughter lightened everybody else's face, but this boy's face remained dark. 
He did more than that. Not only did he fail to share in the joy of his brother coming home, he actually got mad. He got angry. And he actually thought he had a right to be angry. And he was probably like we are sometimes. He felt like his anger was actually righteous indignation. That's the kind of anger that those of us in the church generally claim is righteous indignation. And most of the time that claim is false. Truth be told, righteous indignation is a very rare commodity. And yet there are a few things we need more today than we need righteous indignation. Because when we lack righteous indignation, it shows we've become morally flabby, if not positively rotten or overripe. But righteous indignation has at least two characteristics. Number one, righteous indignation is born of love. It's not born of selfishness and hate. You remember that time when some adults tried to keep some children from coming to Jesus? Jesus was angry about that. He became indignant. What motivated Jesus' indignation? It was His love for children. When Jesus saw right trodden under the foot of might, when Jesus saw weakness crushed by strength, Jesus blazed with anger. And yet, if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus never resented an affront to Himself. Jesus was slandered as few men have ever been slandered. Some said He was a glutton and a wine-bibber and a drunkard. Once He had His face slapped. And none of those things ever moved my Lord to anger. Another characteristic of righteous indignation is it seeks to help and not to hurt. When Jesus became angry, He rebuked those who angered Him, but He rebuked them for their own good. And then Jesus did even more than that. He suffered for them. Jesus sought never to hurt, but always to help. Well, neither of those characteristics belong to the elder son. His anger was not born out of love. His anger was born out of envy and jealousy. He was a child of hate. And not only was it the child of hate, it sought to hurt rather than to help. He refused to go into the feast. Not to help his father. He refused to go into the feast to hurt his father. He was determined. He was going to put that shameless, immoral, prodigal brother of his, he was going to make sure he put him in his place. That anger, that was the type of anger and is the type of anger that seems to be so common and so hurtful among us in our day and time. And that type of anger causes more grief. And that type of anger causes more tears than almost anything else in this world. Because when we're angered, what do we do? We seek to strike out, wound, hurt, and inflict as much pain as we possibly can. 
on the person who angers us. Anger is so hurtful that we often doubt the essence and genuineness of the Christianity of those who constantly give way to it. I read a story not long ago about a preacher preaching in a small town, a town about the size of Center, Texas. And in the church there was a woman who was an outstanding leader. Her husband was a good man. He was an upright man. One of the leading businessmen in the community. And while the husband was not hostile toward religion, he was not a member of the church. And over the course of time, the preacher and this businessman became very close friends. And doing what his union card said he must do, what preachers do, this preacher dressed desperately tried to win this man for the Lord. And he failed in every attempt. Finally, he said to him one day, he said, John, I've done everything I know how to do. And you still won't come to the church. I think at least you ought to tell me why you won't become obedient to the Lord and be a part of the church along with your wife and your children. Now, you got to admit, with great reluctance, the man replied, Well, perhaps you have a right to know and I'm going to tell you. And by telling you this, I hope you won't think I'm reflecting badly on my wife. She's one of the hardest working women in the church. In fact, the church has struggled without her. But she has one big fault. She has a vicious temper. And now and then she goes into a tantrum. And when she does, the children and I just have to take to the woods. He said, it's just hard for me to believe in that kind of Christianity. And this preacher, for a preacher, was a brave man, very brave man. Proving that he was a brave man, he went immediately to the wife. Told her what her husband had said. And he sat there, waiting for her to explode all over him. And her eyes filled with tears, and she said, He's right. I've been ashamed and I've been grieved over my temper many times, but what do I do about it? And the preacher said, Well, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And he said, Joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and meekness and faithfulness and self-control, all of those things are attributes of that love. And they knelt together in prayer, asking the Lord to give her more self-control in her life. A few days later, the husband was making preparations for a fishing trip. He walked into the living room with a fishing rod on his shoulder. It happened they just hung a very beautiful and very expensive lamp in that living room. But that lamp was improperly hung. You see what's coming, don't you? You know what's fixing to happen, don't you? He swung around with that fishing rod, brushed the lamp, and it came crashing down. It sounded like a hardware store washing away in a hurricane. And he stood there. 
shaking in his shoes, waiting for the storm of temper to come from his wife. When it didn't happen, he thought she must not be at home. A moment later, he looked up and saw her smiling at him from the second story banister. She never said a word. The next Sunday, he gave his life to Jesus Christ and put him on in baptism. I read that story and I wondered. I wondered. How many people are there living within the borders of Shelby County, Texas who will never come to Jesus Christ because of the kind of Christian example they've seen set by members of the Lord's Church all over this county? I wish that I could report a victory for this elder son like that of the husband in that story, but I can't. The elder brother was too good to associate with his prodigal brother. And because of that, he was incapable of association with his father. Refusing the association with both the son and the father, he missed the feast. He shut the door in his own face and tore up his ticket. The ticket to the feast is giving your life to Jesus Christ. And giving your life to Jesus Christ, you make Him Lord and Master of your life. And giving our life to Jesus, we begin to put into practice the words of Jesus in John thirteen thirty five. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. If Jesus Christ is not Lord and Master of all of your life, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life, which is it? I'm through. I'm finished. The choice is yours. The decision is yours. The invitation is the Lord's as we stand and while we sing.